Keeping it real, son. That's right. The shining star. My shining star, girl. <laughs> Yo, New York in the house. It's Brooklyn in the house. That's right. Uptown in the house. Shelling, are you in the house? Boogie down, are you in the house? Yeah. Sacramento in the house. Like Atlanta, that. Georgia, are you in the house? There's there's a weird <laughs> inversion of me too. Mariah Terry. She's being sued alongside her ex-manager for uh, sexual harassment and sexual acts, uh, such as uh, <laughs> a her personal assistant got peed on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Apparently, this young woman was peed on in the presence of other co-workers, and that was a thing. That was a thing that they did. But Mariah also allegedly did quote-unquote sexual things while naked in the presence of her management and her team. (laughs) Okay, like, not to be this guy, but there seems to be, like, a big jump between like you know mariah carey like you know walking on her naked and and somebody peeing on somebody else yes all i want to know is like what happened (laughs) because like you know with with the r kelly scenario at least we have like video evidence we know exactly what happened um but there's like a big jump between any situation and being peed on Carrie's manager or former manager, she stands accused of sexual assault due to um, slapping uh, this other woman's uh, breasts and buttocks and uh, humiliating her by peeing on her in front of the presence of other people. She was held down and peed on. Oh no. Now that this fucking R. Kelly Lifetime documentary has come out, all these people are gonna be in public telling telling us that they've been peed on by people. And I'm just gonna, like, get ready. Like, after the R. Kelly documentary, there's just gonna be a lot of lawsuits of rich people. Uh, people. There's also gonna be a lot more peeing. <laughs> people coming out like I was peed on too. <laughs> I was peed on too, but they didn't do it right. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's gonna be a uh, yeah. This makes sense. 2019 is all about piss. <laughs> See, that's the thing is that they th- is is people think that this is going to have like a conservative reaction against R. Kelly and everything, but really just pu- like we're about to get a revolution, a like vanguard, a renaissance of piss play. Ladies, it may be time to become a dominatrix that pees on people. This may be an economic opportunity. <laughs> get it, girls. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Shit Platypus Says, your one-stop shop for the symptomology, necrology, and epidemiology of the left. My name is Pamela Nogales, and I will be joined by my co-hosts, Loy Rojas and the lovely Susie Vogenthaler. Today we have a report on the Yellow Vest protests in France. From Paris, our member Kat is joined by our Greek member Theo. Both give us their reflections on the ongoing mass demonstrations, the crack-up of neoliberalism, and the response by the left. Our closing segment is a special segment on the 10-year anniversary of the financial downturn. 
we're going to talk about how 2008 has been memorialized in popular culture, and we focus on the 2015 movie The Big Short and its portrayal of the economic crisis. If you still don't know what the hell happened in 2008, or were too young to find out, you'll want to hear the end of the episode where our resident financial genius, Wentai, breaks it down. That's what's up. As always, don't forget to send us your questions, criticism, and smart-ass commentary. We are game, and we'd love to put you on the air. With that said, let's get started. Hello. Hi, guys. Uh, So we are on week 10, currently, of the Yellow Vest protests. Kat is here from Paris. Hello there. And Teo, who is in town in Paris from our chapters in Greece. Hi, Teo. Hi. Hi, Pam. You guys are now in Paris, and I thought I'd pick your brain about what's been going on. Well, as you said, we're in the 10th week of the Yellow Vest protests. And after a bit of a drop during the holidays, they've picked up to about 80,000 people at the last government mm-hmm. estimate. They were prompted by a, a planned raise in gas and diesel taxes, which was announced in November, which is when all this started off, about November 17th. Mm-hmm. Essentially as an ecological measure, but there were a few issues with the implementation of it. I read somewhere in Socialist Worker that a lot of people complained that this tax was really intended only to finance the shortfall in the 2019 budget. It was seen as not being legitimate or that that people were sort of hiding other budgetary concerns behind the tax. I read some statistics from the protesters and uh, Mm -hmm. they were saying that they they joined the um, demonstrations because... uh, um, this tax um, was a symbol of the social injustice going on and mm-hmm. that it was affecting disproportionately the majority. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in the beginning it was not uh, in an urban uh, center. Yeah, right. It started from uh, rural uh, areas and then there was a climax that also involved uh, people in the cities. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it still does have a pretty heavy rural focus in constituency, I think. And even in Paris, a lot of the people who are coming in are coming in from, from outside of the city, from the Bandu, from the countryside. Mm-hmm. These are people who are not unionized, or is it a combination of unionized workers and non-unionized workers? As far as I know, the majority are not unionized or politically involved before. And many say that these are their first protests mm-hmm. to join. I mean, at this point, as the demands have increased and there's been more and more issues uniting people. I mean, the gas thing is definitely a key part, but it's, I wouldn't say it's so much the center of what this is all based around anymore. Seems to be a lot about Macron lately, but what what are the demands that are being presented? Like, what is this about then? Well, they put out a list of, I think about 47 demands, Mm. which, Mm. which people have coalesced around. But some of the key ones are reinstating the wealth tax, which Macron removed earlier this year, raising the the SMIC, the minimum wage, to 1300 a month, uh, improving retirement benefits, not cutting the retirement benefits, uh, an end to homelessness, which was the first thing on the list, mm-hmm. and institution of what they're calling the referendum, initiative citoyen, mm-hmm. which would give people the right to have referendums both to put in place laws, remove laws put in place by parliament, recall elected officials, and change elements of the Constitution. Not all that different from what you have in the U.S. in different states regarding referendums and, uh, well, I suppose in the U.K. somewhat as well. But Yeah, or yeah. Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Switzerland. Yeah, Switzerland. Mm-hmm. A lot of people I've talked to have brought up Switzerland as an example of what they'd like to see. I see. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Switzerland is into these democratic uh, procedures, but uh, also very right-wing results. I mean, many votes are democratic but conservative in character. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, but the emphasis here is in the procedure that people must have a voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the emphasis, right? Yeah, yeah. And that politicians need to listen to them and this kind of rhetor- rhetoric. Well, I think it's worth keeping in mind too that the president in France has a lot more power mm-hmm. than, than other presidents. Um, right. Yeah. And the way the system is set up is that generally the party that takes power in the presidential elections is going to sweep the legislators as well. So there's definitely a feeling of 
I don't know, lack of representation. It's worth keeping in mind that even though Macron won, what, like 64% of the vote, mm. the way the French electoral system works is that the first two leaders of the first round go on to the second round. And he won 64% of the vote against Marine Le Pen. So he picked up pretty much all of the other people running against Marine Le Pen who did not want her to win. Like his approval ratings have hovered generally in the 20s, which is about the percentage of supporters that he had in the first round. So it's not hugely surprising that there'd be this much opposition or this much support for opposition, considering mm-hmm. that limited of a mandate. I saw a brief interview that Vice did where a French worker was asked what, what he wanted and what, what this was for. He was occupying some kind of factory uh, with his fellow workers. And he said, you know, well, we tried the left and we've tried the right and both haven't worked. So we're going to try something else. And I know that a lot of the left has commented on the lack of the union presence in this movement, that union leadership doesn't really seem to be enthusiastic about this because it seems to challenge even their own political leadership, their own leadership within rather these civil society institutions. So what political character does this have? Before uh, Kat um, responds about the present, uh, I would I would just like to connect uh, this event with uh, prior events in uh, Greece. A few years ago, the um, Syndagma Square protests and the indignation, because they had uh, similar demands for a real democracy, representation and all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, concerning your question, it was very interesting that um, the protesters didn't want political parties or trade unions to participate in the protests. Mm-hmm. They thought that the, um, these institutions have uh, proved inadequate, bankrupt, that they have tried them in the past, as you said, to the level that they, they would um, chase or attack people from trade unions or political parties away mm-hmm. uh, from the protests. So I don't know if the situation is similar or um, trade unions and not political parties uh, participate here, at least at least uh, trade unions oh, are I welcome. Mean, What's your impression? I think members or supporters are certainly welcome, but from the reaction I've seen I mean, from the uh, this is the reaction I've seen online in a lot of the groups organizing this, is generally there's a pretty heavy distrust both of political parties and trade unions, of trade unions just somehow being... Part of the, esta- of the part establishment. Part of the establishment, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah and, this, and the same for the political parties. There's definitely a heavy distrust. The trade unions and the political parties haven't really been able to put up any sort of significant opposition to Macron. I mean, they held protests and rallies against the reforms to the labor laws since he's been in, but they've been nothing like this and they haven't really attracted a significant amount of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, there is, um, you know, some truth in that, that uh, they are indeed part of the establishment, <laughs> the trade unions and their leaders. They certainly are. <laughs> but uh, also it's uh, very conservative um, to not even accept them around. And, and uh, now, uh, a few days ago, um, not to have them around, I mean to debate, etc. Um, a few days ago, the Five Star Movement, in, uh, mm-hmm. that's in the government that's in right. Italy, offered mm-hmm. uh, the digital platform in the movement to be used in one of its leaders. And uh, the leaders uh, declined the yeah, offer. Eric, Eric Louis. Exactly, yeah, exactly. In order to distance themselves from uh, the Five Star um, Movement, and any institutional, political, uh, established party. But it's interesting that the Five Star Movement started like that. Yeah. From protests, ending up in government right now with an uh, extreme right party. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a key question people mm-hmm. have about the um, spontaneity of the spontaneity, to put it in Lenin's terms, of these protests. I mean, what's their political influence and orientation behind the um, rhetoric about uh, we're not left, we're not right? Mm-hmm. What's really going on? You said that like the rejection of having a party spokesman or the leaders of unions present for debate is a conservative impulse. I wonder what is there to conserve, right? Like, So this 
movement seems to be about preserving the voice of the people, right? That the voice of the people has been um, corrupted by political leaders, union leaders, and that true democracy has to assert itself unmediated. And, uh, and so no left, no right, just the people. Yeah, that's the, that's the real problem because um, my experience from Greece that was that um, behind uh, all these uh, slogans of real mm-hmm. democracy, political agents work. Mm-hmm. And um, no matter what uh, people uh, say, they seek to strong leadership, political leadership. And when they say we don't want representation and we want the voice of the people to be heard, actually they're seek for paternalistic guidance in a sense. And in Greece, it was um, we saw the Syriza um, government, um, you know, consolidating, and also the Golden Dawn mm-hmm. parties from that were very small and marginal, they became strong. And mm-hmm. behind the apolitical um, uh, attitudes, there were uh, huge uh, political concerns, but without consciousness of the political need for leadership and guidance and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, someone has to take the responsibility of uh, politics. And I'm not sure who is uh, here in France now is going to capitalize on, on that. That's one question that I had. I don't know to what extent Mélenchon would benefit from such a movement. Or what, what does the left in France think is going to happen? Or how are they responding to the protests? Well, Mélenchon and the France Insoumise, his party, have been fairly supportive. And I, I will say that they've been less harshly received as than, than the unions have. The unions, the Cégeté and others, have been, uh, have been not well received. Um, they've been fairly supportive. I do question to what extent they can capitalize on this and what, mm-hmm. what can come out of it. For the moment, it's just as if it's a, a negative uh, against Macron. No, no other political uh, agent seems able to capitalize on it. No. It's like a imbalance of power that is uncertain for the moment. Um, the left is reaffirming its uh, prejudice on various issues. I mean, people who were into identity politics, they say that the movement is conservative because there's no much participation from the banlieue. And uh, yeah. some people think that this it is... Um, it is a fascist movement in a sense. There are extreme uh, tendencies in the left that they consider it a populist right-wing uh, movement to consolidate French people against uh, foreigners. Um, others, they, they support it because uh, they think that it's um, indicative of um, direct democracy and all these aspects. I mean, people have their programs and they try to find... Um, uh, proof or evidence proof, that proof of what they yeah. re-established as uh, you know their opinion i saw i read on uh, in the socialist worker one of the what's his name leon cremieux he's a member of the new anti-capitalist party he says i quote the present demand for democracy may lead to other developments if the movement is maintained in the form of local popular assemblies leading to militant action to fight for solutions that meet social needs. This democratic aspiration, even if it doesn't find an outlet, will not be resolved by the yellow vest being co-opted, regardless of the desire of individual leaders to advance themselves personally. So it's a great certainty there that because of the demand for democracy or democratization, that this is going to eventually benefit uh, some kind of left agenda. Yeah, the left has abandoned mass politics and they seek for, um, you know, other ways to cover their uh, lack of um, adequate response in mass politics to the current yeah. problems. And they make um, a virtue out of a necessity, in a sense. It started off as a movement against taxation in France because, uh, I know, uh, I'll, I'll standard of living are dropping every year. Yeah. Everything is getting more expensive and the government is just taxing us more and more to finance more legal and illegal immigration to France. Right. Uh, so th- this isn't just about the carbon tax then, there's way more to it than that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, 
it's just one more, the last drop onto the big pile of shit that France has become. Right. And th this isn't left or right, this is people from all different backgrounds, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm part of a nationalist movement, but overall we're not the majority here by any means. Uh, there's a lot of people from every, from every side of the political spectrum here, uh, from the left side, from the anarchists that are fighting the police, to uh, random people that are not really politicized, but are just have enough of Macron's policies in France. Do you think this is going to hurt Macron in the upcoming May elections? Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Where do you think people will shift to? Uh, to? To both extremes. So Jean-Luc Mélenchon on the left, and um, possibly Marine Le Pen or Nicolas Dupont-Aignan on the right. What do you think people might ho be hoping to achieve from this? Is there anything tangible that people want? Uh, I don't it's, it's, it's a very confusing movement because there's a lot of things in there. It's not just about carbon tax, I told you. It's about a lot of things that have been piling up for years. Yeah. It's also about immigration. It's also about insecurity. It's also about the, just the general drop in the standards of living in France. Kat, do you, have you talked to people? A lot of the protests, at least from an outsider perspective, they seem to be mostly middle-aged or older people. Are younger people in Paris connected to this? Like, what are they saying? What are they thinking? Yeah, certainly. Um, and I've talked, I've talked to a few people. I talked to a woman last week who is a, uh, a high school teacher who is mm -hmm. there because of the protests that the, the high school students had going on for a little while, um, still going on regarding selection for the state universities. And I mean, she was there mainly for the students and there were some students there as well. I've seen a less so the last time, but I've seen a lot of high school students and a lot of university students out. Did you see the video of all the, the high school students on their knees with their hands behind their heads with police officers walking behind them with guns? Yeah. 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 Okay. In, uh, in Greece, young people like the movement because it's, uh, it appears as not one movement, but uh, multiple movements on many fronts. They think that the state cannot um, suppress uh, the movement because of that because it's coming from the future or something. It's not anarchistic in a traditional way. It's not uh, communist. It's not... So, um, I, I have met young people that like this aspect of... Mm, that sounds a lot like Occupy, though. Exactly. And uh, we all know what that gave us. Just yeah. variations yeah. of Democrats. No, not only Occupy, but also the Arab Spring, that the masses appear like in an unorganized manner, and they make political shifts and changes in a chaotic way. But something like this is now the present and future of politics to accept the blindness of the movement. And it has been a disaster for Occupy, for Arab Spring, for Europe and the Indignado movement so far. But no lessons have been learned. The experience is not accumulated uh, in any sense so far, we're still uh, in the same uh, impotence. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I think the, I think that maybe the Indignados and uh, and the Arab Spring are a closer comparison than Occupy, just because of, well, the, I mean, the one extent I think that the people that Taylor is talking about are correct is that it is a lot of different struggles and a lot of different issues, and I think part of why this has ballooned so quickly is because the amount of different reforms that Macron's tried to put in have affected so many different sectors of society that if it had just been like, say, he tried to reform pensions, well, right. that would be one sector. And if it had just been the gas thing, well, that would be one group. But mm. because it's gone through university students, pensioners, people who drive, uh, people who work for minimum wage, union workers, you've got so many different aspects of society this is now affecting. Um, now, whether that will make it hold together, I don't know, but I do think it's definitely a more, it's certainly more of a mass-based movement than I ever had the impression Occupy was. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it seems to be responding more clearly to more specific things, despite having no hierarchy or necessarily a way of acting on what it wants to achieve. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, crisis of neoliberalism is on the agenda here. Oh, yes. 
but the the parties that are against neoliberalism they do not see their uh, votes rise as they would expect i mean melanson or uh, other parties that have similar agenda in europe no they were expecting to have more gains from this uh, crisis yeah. of neoliberalism and protests but they're not seeing seeing that so far and they're also surprised people want transformation not uh, confrontations with uh, the old establishment it's it's a bit uh, tricky there's an exhaustion of old political paradigms and, mm. and it doesn't seem to fit how people imagine uh, their their own protest against the status quo is not captured by the available mm. political leadership right you know if there were a left we could imagine this to be a break in a kind of political imagination or it could be just like it has in different countries be mobilized by the right because it, it resists political articulation and therefore it's usurped by those who have the institutional capacities to make political change. The left, uh, because they, they're not thinking about revolutions, they say that pe these people are demonstrating for a tax, so they, they demonstrate for a better France on a national level. Or if they are positive uh, towards them, they say that, okay, people, they want more democracy during the same kind of institutional framework. Mm -hmm. I, I think we must have in mind that um, after the crisis, the left uh, was waiting to, you know, grab the fruits. How, what's the expression of the crisis? Finally, objective conditions are here, but there is a huge stagnation and we're in the same... <laughs> The left is in the same place, I mean, for all these uh, years, and um, it, just, it just keeps going on. I agree. This is a moment that could be a huge opportunity. The question is what will and what can come of it. The lack of any... I mean, maybe this arose because there has been no organized opposition, really, within the country against, against Macron, but I don't know where it can lead to. And I'm not sure if it will necessarily be something outside of France. Though there has been some spreading to Belgium, if that counts. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. a few hundred. I, I was surprised. I noticed that people were attacking the movement, that it is fascist and conservative, the same way they, they attack Trump, like a fascist and conservative. I mean, people in Greece I know, they yeah. were hysteric against the movement that it's uh, there these are white uh, French people who just want to keep their privileges and yeah. i don't know i just noticed that i want to say it was the same uh, furious response <laughs> like against uh, trump against the yellow vest from segments of the of the left yeah i've seen that a lot reading english language articles on it but i can say having been there i mean it is absolutely a majority like white French movement, but there's certainly a not insignificant degree of diversity among the people protesting. It's just that what they're protesting for are everyday issues. Right. Yeah. I wanted to know if there were any protest songs being chanted because I know the French oh, love their Oh, yes. Protests. Yeah, there's a song that you need to hear. Someone did a Gilets Jaunes theme song, this, this oh, yes. guy from Cote d'Ivoire. And like every time people have been walking down the street, someone will start playing it on a boombox. And... <laughs> <laughs>
here with Susie. Good morning. And Pam. Good evening. <laughs> Time zone differences at play here. <laughs> so maybe we can start with the the big short and how it portrays the economic crisis. Yeah. You should say also that, you know, there's some rumors going about in liberal media outlets as as well as the financial community that the financial downturn of 10 years ago may may not really be superseded that another downturn is around the corner. And so I think also these rumors are bringing up how people digest the right the downturn of 10 years ago so i think it was in part what prompted us to talk about this yeah exactly the december kind of talk in the news about the economy slowing down particularly in the us uh scared a lot of people yeah yeah so the obvious point right is that 2008 was a big year in regards to also the election of obama in the immediate aftermath of the economic crash of September 2008, right? So these things came out and Obama in a way produced a general pacification of the crisis. There was a retreat, no? Except that it broke out with Occupy and then had other crises expressed in Europe with the Greek crisis, for example, that went on for a bit, also the Arab Spring, etc. Mm. The Big Short, I think what I liked about that movie to begin with was kind of how it tried to formally in between help break down in very layman's terms some of the more complicated technical moments of the economic crisis and how it was really trying to reach a mass audience by trying to explain to it the steps that led up to the major uh, collapse of Wall Street. Yeah, I had like Anthony Bourdain and uh, Selena Gomez and these people try to try to explain things like credit default swaps and Uh, I read a review of that in The Guardian. They really didn't like that. Or at least one of the film reviewers didn't like this. Thought it was sort of speaking down to people. But I think what they were trying to do is make information that otherwise would be completely inaccessible to the majority of the public accessible, right? Like they wanted they wanted people that were not specialists to have a sense of why it was so alarming. Uh, what was happening was so alarming. I, th I think they did an okay job. You know, sometimes it was more successful than others, but it, it was an interesting attempt. Kitschy, but, you know, good kitsch. Yeah, and I think that they had the argument, even explicitly said so in the film, of like, that this is what they felt the problem was. That people sort of kind of like were able to ignore or turn a blind eye or not pay too much close attention to it because it felt like this really obscure thing was going on. And for them, somehow, Wall Street was getting away with murder, basically, with... Uh, incredible amount of corruption as a result of quote-unquote people not understanding what they were doing and that people would just accept that what they were doing was in their best interests and that wasn't the case you know it's based on real life characters like Steve Carell's character Mark Baum is based on Steven Eisman who profited from the collapse of the US housing bubble by actually shorting the CDOs And everybody else is based on these sort of real life actors. So the movie was trying to give you a slice of how the financial world actually works, right? Like the people that make it tick and how usually these people don't know what the other one is doing and that this is part of what allows for certain errors to take place or a lack of perspective and long-term vision, right? And so... Mm -hmm. Like the, the movie is showing you a group of people that saw it coming, right? So the idea is that these people benefited from the crash, even if reluctantly so, right? In the case of um, Mark Baum's character. But nonetheless, the reason why they benefit is because they understand that something's gone wrong and nobody else around them believes them. And so they're like, they have this insight, right? And in that way, it's quite uh, romantic in its overall perspective, right? That like it's the genius in people who happen to be able to see what's coming that's being ignored by the system. And if you just, if you had somehow a system in place that valued the genius insight of these strange, maybe autistic, including right, like Christian Bale's character, Michael Burry is like a bit... It's like it's definitely on the spectrum. Yeah. 
you know, that these people understand something that others chose to ignore. And so a lot of the film is about this, these people that should be maybe in positions of, of leadership or power, but are not. So it's kind of romantic, liberal perspective about people's capacity to lead. Yeah. I think it's part of the mythos that it's presenting. But it was good. I really, I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the film. It also, it was, I thought it was educational. I mean, I'm not somebody that's well-versed in the language of finance. And even though I understand very roughly how things work, I don't necessarily know the mechanism through which they work. Like, you know, like for me, what was really interesting is the breakdown of the division of labor of the financial world, right? Like, mm-hmm. who is actually doing these credit default swaps? Like, what are the, okay, so they're crediting institutions first here, and then there are these trade companies, and then there are the sort of smaller hedge fund, like people, and all these people are related to the bigger banks, but in this hypermediated way. And so, you know, you really start asking yourself, is there any one person that know what's happening in the whole, yeah. right? And like the film kind of highlights how that's not the case. Like There was a sense, I guess, in that division of labor breaking down in which nobody could be made accountable, truly. That's what I saw, the problem of accountability. And even the institutions that were about accountability weren't properly doing their job. Mm-hmm. There's the other scene with the Steve Carell character that goes to the office in Edwin where she, he meets with the older lady. And there's that scene where she's, she kind of also deflects the problem of like, if we give them bad ratings, they'll just go to the other bank. We'll lose their business. She basically says that, right? Yeah, she, he was meeting with the crediting institutions asking why weren't they rating these risky loans as risky. And you, you get the sense that like everything is completely out of whack and something, something's gone fundamentally wrong. But I guess this is why it fits a certain, like it's about people taking responsibility for their jobs right like the moral of the story right if the film has a moral of the story because it is Mm -hmm. it's a very accessible narrative and so there's this kind of i don't know like an ethical question that's being provoked by the film right like if people did their jobs well right yeah and if the if the right people were in the positions of of leadership within this industry then it would be better it would it could work right At, at least that's what the film suggests I was just watching um, another film that memorialized the the crash, uh, Margin Call, that is mm-hmm. from 2011. It's with Kevin Spacey. It's interesting because it, it's a it's it's crazy claustrophobic film. It all takes place like in one like trading company, and you're just like being forced to deal with the crash among like five people. Uh, like the whole movie is just like five people dealing with it. Uh, people in higher positions of power down to the analysts that saw it coming. And what I liked about the movie in contrast to the big short was that no one, it doesn't feel like anyone's in control. It's just this pressure to act and to respond in a certain way that, that even though you have people that can fire other people and in that way they're responsible to one another, the hiring and firing of people, that they don't really have the capacity to avoid the crash, nor did they ever. Like, there's a sense of, there's no sense that you could achieve mastery in the way that in the big short, it's like if these people were just morally righteous, right? If they were if they were doing well to uh, for others and, you know, in their jobs, then they could get out of it, right? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Am I making sense? I think so. Okay. Yeah. But at least like with the big short, like that sort of moralism about the particular investors uh, and yeah, Wall Street traders abilities to rear in this somewhat inevitable crash and them just watching it crash and burn is that there is the sense that like it isn't just a natural phenomenon, which is how it appears Mm -hmm. is like, you know, the hand of God pushing the economy off the cliff. Yeah. And the explanations by our sweet, you know, uh, Disney darling from that time, Selena Gomez, sort of makes it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's It does push the question of, like, is this completely man-made thing something that man can't master itself? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's 
it's a picture of uh, the little man of the philosophy of freedom, which we read like nine times on our reading yes. group syllabus. Yes. That's what it also made me think of. It reminded me about the little man problem, how it expresses itself, even in the sort of higher echelons of the financial system. None of them truly feel like they have the power to change uh, the system or to fix it. But I guess the other thing is the... We don't really ever see it crash and burn. I mean, the economy crashed. Globally, people lost their homes, their jobs. Horrible things happened to people as a result of this, right? But there was, because there was a bailout, right? The government stepped in and made a bailout to try to save the U.S. economy with taxpayer money, with the little man's, like the real little man's money. That, I guess, is the other problem of the imagination that people just kind of like did somehow manage to go on with their lives. And we didn't, there was no crash and burn. It was 2.6 million jobs were lost in the United States in 2008. Yeah. And technically we've recovered those jobs now. That's the claim. We're back to pre-2008 numbers. Well, people are driving Ubers and working three jobs. Yes. Here, uh, I'm on vacation in Milwaukee now and here in Wisconsin, I believe unemployment is down to 3%. Hmm. Yeah. It's supposedly gearing up again or restabilized supposedly but yeah but of course those jobs are like uh for example walking dogs yeah or task rabbit in new york where you yeah have this freelance precarious position you know building people their ikea furniture and even meaning it's skewed in germany the unemployment rate is skewed by the existence of this thing called the mini job where you make up to 400 or 450 to 500 a month that is not taxed by either the employer or the worker, but it still counts. Uh, it's recorded either way in the system, and it still counts towards employment, people who are employed because they have a mini-job because they make 500 euros a month. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's massively skewed by all these precarious type of work. Yeah, 450. Yeah, 450. I just looked it up. Yeah, no, it's it's... But it's also the, I mean... The precarity of freelance laborers that work for Uber or TaskRabbit or whatever, right, is also like, if, okay, so that is considered employment, right? But you're not given a guarantee of salary. You're not given any health insurance. You're not, you're, t- you're undertaking a lot of risk for the capitalist as that kind of precarious worker. It's, yeah, not full-time employment. We can't underestimate, meaning the two other things that we've talked about perhaps off the air is sort of the general burnout state the millennials are finding themselves in and the opioid crisis of millennials not being able to find work. Yeah, combined with the student debt. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, we can't sort of catastrophize. But we, we started this conversation, or at least this part of the conversation, about the things that are not in the movie. Um the job losses and this kind of stuff. Okay, I mean, they do come up sometimes. Okay, so at one point, the housing market, I mean, the whole narrative of the big short is that everybody thought the bedrock of American economy is housing. And so mortgages are a sure thing, right? Like, and at one point, one of the characters actually says, uh, well, like, of course they're a safe bet, right? I mean, if they weren't, like, there'd be like millions, there'd be millions of homeless people. Mm-hmm. Right, she says this in one of the characters in the film, and right, it, it's like, well, the system is going to take care of people. Like that's what it revealed that some people were acting, like the credit institutions were acting responsibly. Everyone was acting responsibly to some extent because they believed in the housing market. They believed that it was like the bedrock of the American economy. And it had never crashed. That, the whole point is right. That... Exactly, it never crashed. Right, but there's a faith like in its progress. Yeah, I mean, my mother was real estate and she was definitely behind that mentality of selling. That's right, your mother. <laughs> no, but it, right, like I, you know, I, I grew up with that mentality in my house of the mm-hmm. housing mm-hmm. market is the most stable and reliably like consistent growth, but stable, that it was a bubble that was never going to burst. Mm-hmm. That was the most reliable investment you could ever make mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to buy property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. And you get that in the film. You definitely get that again and again. But where does that leave us? 
the sampling of that market is interesting in the film. So there's close-ups. There's like these mini montages that happen as a transition mm -hmm. in the film that's like snippet of a soldier, a waitress, uh, a couple, a middle-class couple in a car. And, you know, it's like the sampling of America. They're the characters that don't speak in the film, but they're shown in photographs. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. It happens, yeah. And, and you know, and then you have the one moment in the film where it's... Uh, Stephen Corral goes to investigate, you know, he's the head fund manager. He goes to investigate the housing market in Florida. Yeah. Remember? And he ends up at a strip club and he talks to the girl, the stripper. Yeah. And he's like, wait, what's going on? Like, yep. how come you're signing on to these loans? Like, what are you, or how come you're buying this, these houses? Like what, what's happening? And what have you been told by the brokers? Right. Cause the broker has been selling this, like, how does it go, Lori? It's like, the rates are gonna blow up after the initial period or something. It's I, I don't quite understand like that. Remember the guys, the brokerage, the the, the broker guys, and like he, the guy is like a yield guy. Yeah, well, he, and he's the one that's doing the worst. The loans are getting bought up like immediately. He gives the little loan to the stripper, and immediately yeah. he says, "On Friday, my loan." is basically valued in a certain way but then by monday it gets bought by a bigger loan so the value increases because it enters into sort of this quote-unquote i think uh bigger value system oh oh the synthetic cdos mm -hmm. right <laughs> right the credit default okay wait 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 yeah this this is important right because basically what's going on is like the innovation in the financial mar markets in the financial markets that these mortgage-backed security products are being consolidated out of all of this smaller uh, uh, tr tranches, they're called, of ratings that are not AAA but are being like packaged, repackaged as being AAA exactly. loans. Exactly. And then so people are like, they're making a killing because they're like buying up all of these things that are supposedly going to be AAA uh, accredited, but then they're actually buying bunk loans. Exactly. What, what is it that he says, uh, the yield guy says, like, he doesn't even have to write up, like, the person's salary. Job. Yes. What do they call it? A ninja. No income or job or something required. Yeah. They're like ninja loans. Isn't yeah. It? Right. So they know they're selling you people who can't, like, actually pay them back. Yeah. But they don't care because the banks don't care. The bigger banks are still taking up the loans without... Because they're being bundled with triple A loans. And it keeps and, and the bigger bundles are what gets sold to even the bigger institutions. Yes. The bigger financial institutions. And there's so many people in between, right? Like this is the idea. There's so many people in between that no one knows what the others do. Or maybe they do know, but they don't Right, there's that moment where he's like, Why is he confessing? And the guys are like, Oh, this guy's not confessing to you, he's bragging. Yeah. Because Steve Carell's like, this guy's just telling me all these things. And his co-workers are like, no, 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 no. Like, these guys are proud of what they're doing. They're telling you that they're really good at yeah, this. Yeah, they're making a lot of money. So people are doing a good job. Right. People think that they're doing a good job. Or he thinks he's doing a good job. But don't you think that, like, the movie portrays that guy as scum? Yeah, of course it does. Like, the guy's, like, a shitty guy, right? He doesn't care about people. All he cares about is being able to buy his boat. Yeah. He just wants to get his dick sucked and ride his fucking car, right? Like, is he supposed to be that dude? Yeah. You know what this reminds me of is uh, is actually, like, speaking of the legacy of this in the job market, is the way that Uber and similar companies do these microloans with no interest and that are also being, like, funded through or, like, bought out by the larger banks um but are being done like the the uber program where you can drive with them until your car is bought off and they'll buy you a car oh yeah yeah that's something that's happening at least in america uh you can mm -hmm. buy buy a car simply by driving for uber until you've driven enough that you've made back that money for very low interest yeah and so the fear here is that it's just recreating the same sort of bubble that's at least what i've been able to gather is is there these somewhat tendentious microloans that are being sold to those like made uh put in unemployment by the last financial crisis and it's causing a bubble that 
could be very fragile. Well, it's also the only way that they're telling them that they can be employed is by being in debt to the capitalists. So right. that's, that's a that's a shaky, it's a, sh- it's a real dark future of labor there. <laughs> right. don't know what happened in 2008 here is Wentai to tell us what the fuck happened so let's walk through a quick example of a mortgage okay you want to buy a house and you need a mortgage from the bank but maybe you're a millennial and you can't afford the down payment so you go to your friend Pam and ask to borrow money Turns out you still don't have enough. So then you go to Lori and you ask to borrow money from her. Who? Me? Now you have enough for your down payment, and the bank puts up the rest, and you buy the house. Now there are three lenders involved, but each is subordinated to the one before, which means that if you sell the house, you first need to pay the bank back, then Pam, then Lori, then you get the rest if there's anything left. So if Lori's being logical, she should charge you more than Pam. And if Pam is being logical, she should charge you more than the bank because each is progressively taking more risk. Got it. That's all a CDO really is. It's slicing up the debt structure. In this particular CDO, the bank is class A, Pam is the class B, and Lori is the class C. So we can go on and on and create a class D, E, F, etc. As an aside, I met a structured credit trader once who lived through the crisis who has a few rules of investing, and one of them is never invest in the class F. It's the class fuck. He fucked up. And you can see why. Because you're subordinated to the five other people that will be paid out before you. So CDO is just taking any financial asset, mortgages, loans against hotels, loans against companies, and financing it by selling off a bunch of these tranches of debt to different investors who have different risk appetites. If you have little to no tolerance for loss, you take the class A. If you need to make 10% to finance your underfunded pension, you go for the class E. Obviously, one mortgage is relatively small, so people would pool these mortgages together so that a CDO was collateralized by all of them. Ah... In the same way today, they pool loans against companies like Chuck E. Cheese, Del Frisco's, and JCPenney's, and they call it a CLO, or a collateralized loan obligation. Hmm. The second major benefit to CDOs was diversification. So one person can have a lot of random risks that make them not able to pay, while the risks of large groups of people can be better approximated based on statistical models. Wait, what? So the nice thing about CDOs is that while they are debt, so they do have a finite life, they actually generally had um, quite long maturities, five to ten years, meaning they weren't subject to runs, i.e. the class B guy could only get his money out by selling to someone else or selling all the assets. So CDOs were used to finance many things, but mostly mortgages. However, how were mortgages financed before CDOs? Mm. Well, they were financed by banks. But how do banks provide money for mortgages? while banks have depositors and other short-term debt. So banks are actually a lot like a CDO, except, and this is a crucial difference, when can you call in a deposit? Well, any time, unlike what we just discussed with CDOs and the Class B guy. Got it. So to be clear, banks are providing long-term assets, i.e. 30-year mortgages, while the money they have been given could be asked back at any time. That doesn't sound like a good idea, but that's actually how the entire banking system in every country works. Damn, girl. Now, practically, what happens when depositors call in their money is that there isn't actually enough money lying around because it's tied up in Pam's house and Lori's house, etc. Hmm. So they need someone, i.e. the Federal Reserve or the government, to lend against their assets, loans to companies, to pay the redeeming depositors. That's actually what a bank run is, and that's actually what caused the 2008 financial crisis. Hmm. The only thing that was more complicated about 2008 was that it wasn't really depositors like consumers who started the run. It was companies and institutional investors' deposits that were funneled through what are called money market funds that started to pull out of financial institutions. Ah. And you'll note this has nothing to do with CDOs directly. 
Instead, CDOs played an indirect role in the crisis. So widespread worries about banks holding CDOs caused depositors to run. But saying CDOs themselves caused the crisis is to miss the fact that loans to, you know, LATAM countries in the 70s caused a similar run. It's not the asset itself per se, it's the fundamental structure of the financial sector. Boom. Boom, bitch. But this isn't to say CDOs didn't have issues. They did, primarily because some guy took them to a simple but elegant extremity. So this genius thought, if CDOs are just financing debt claims, i.e. mortgages, why don't we stick CDO liabilities, i.e. the class A, B, C, D, E, into a CDO and finance it with a new CDO called a CDO squared? Therefore, you could have a class A of CDO squared that was actually just a collection of class Ds of other CDOs. Gotcha, bitch! But why would people buy these? Because you could run a fancy model to say that the class D from Florida mortgages wasn't correlated to the class D of Nevada mortgages, and hence it was less risky than owning class Ds. I would have called it to the class double Ds and asked for a higher payment. But in today's environment, that probably wouldn't fly. So the real reason people created them is actually linked to the one big flaw of the CDOs, which is that there's always one class getting screwed over. And this was needed because we have different silos of investors and each can only buy a certain thing, hence the tranching in the first place. But usually the tranching leads to one shit tranche. You can only cut up a pizza pie so many ways and make everyone happy. It may be the most senior one, it's getting underpaid for taking a lot of risk, or it may be the most junior one, the class F, which is worth zero. But there's always one tranche, and guess who ended up holding it? Yep, the banks who were creating them. But it was fine for them, because they were making a lot of money selling all the other tranches, and the tranche they held, they could just hold at par, i.e. the value they bought it at so they didn't lose any money on it, even though no one was willing to buy it at that price. Hmm. But when they had too much of this shit, they just stuck it into another CDO. But the pattern repeats itself, and now there is another shit tranche of the CDO squared that they are left with, and so the cycle continues. It was the realization that banks held massive amounts of shit that caused a run on the banking system. But while the CDOs, and then the synthetic CDOs, were the asset that caused the panic, the reason for its devastation was that the banking system is based on what really is an illusion. You can't have 30-year assets financed with daily deposits without some frictional costs. And unfortunately, under the current system, you know, it's the taxpayers that bridge this mismatch in the bad times and the bankers who clip the returns in the good times. That's a bunk shit. The response to 2008 was not really to solve the problem of too big to fail, but rather to capitulate to the view that crises are endemic to the financial system. And by increasing the managerial capacity and oversight of state regulatory agencies, you know, as provisioned in things like Dodd-Frank, to deepen the interdependency of the financial system on the state. Went, are you smart? <laughs> <laughs> this has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalog of The Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bitches on me like a bachelor. These niggas mad at the ball. Now.
got a cassana on my car. I keep that work for the love. I give a fuck about a whole damn. 22 shots to his brain if he stand on my neck. Not a joke, not a game. Fuck around and I stop my neck. Do what I need for respect. Probably no weapon come school. I made that little bitch straight at the school. You cannot play me, y'all never been fooled. You cannot play me, y'all never been fooled. Shawty got friends and I'm pulling up. I'm getting hit like an uppercut. They don't want war, they not tough enough. Shawty just told me I'm glowing up. I need that shit and not out yet. I wanna form my outfit. Dominant and dabble and run it up. Y'all niggas never done y'all it up. I got your bitch in my spot again. I'm in Shibuya just stacking yen. Smoking on gas, don't fuck with me. Don't play me, little bitch, I'm not a kid. Take a good look at where a nigga live. Look at the moves that a nigga did. Look at the faces a nigga stare. Flick at the wrist, be like, look at here. Regular bitches play hard to get. It's funny she come, but we couldn't pair. Oh no, he didn't, done took it there. I done some things that you wouldn't dare. I need the deal on Prada suits. I need that rap and that Gucci too. I need JW Innocent. I should pop Pamela Innocent. Pulling her pussy in ambulance Let me recall like the cameraman I'ma zoom in with my camera lens I'm going in like the Taliban Beautiful, Beauty. all of you, all of you Hey, Papa Ben, Jack the Screw, Double Cup Fill me up, I'm riding through Hollywood Smoking good, I'm on the move